Mr. A here, saying, how y'all doing? Yo! Are you ready to rumble? Or should I say tumble? Cause I don't stumble or bumble like a crack of Brian Gumbo. Standing on the ground, flat feet, I'm doing drums and drums, and I'm doing it on my toes. Welcome to the Rumble. We are back and better than ever helping you stay ready so you don't have to get ready. We don't want you sucker punch, so we're here each and every week helping you keep your guard up. I am Jeremy Lavelle with Remedy Claims Consulting at Claims Coach on Instagram and TikTok. Blah, and you just call me the blah. mouth of the South. And alongside of me once again is the catastrophe queen, the claims dame, Miss Jessica Odell. And the adorably ostentatious, the abundantly accessible, the one, the only, baby cakes, Miss Donna Lavelle. How's everybody doing this fine, fine day? Good. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I know I mean, that sounded so convincing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got to tell you, you know what? This is probably. I don't know if it's just that it's the new year, but it's kind of like my favorite time of year. And a lot of people hate the cold, but I love the cold. I hate the cold. Some season changes. I mean, I, I, well, yeah, because we have one season hot and then we have one other season not as hot. And so when we kind of had a cold snap, we kind of kind of hold cold snap at the end of the year. And I really enjoyed kind of the brief reprieve in fact you know i've traveled to russia multiple times and every time i've gone i've chosen to go in the winter (laughs) why would you do that (laughs) because it's cold i i honestly i enjoy cold weather then why do you why do you put never mind i guess it's because i grew up in texas i just like it because it's different and i never really see it but anyway there's a fun fact about jeremy but speaking of fun facts I have some fun facts. Baby Cakes has some fun facts. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the microphone. Fun Facts with Baby Cakes. Fun Facts with Baby Cakes is brought to you by Inc. The best way to get paid after an insurance claim. Inc. (laughs) Save time. Get paid. Why are you looking at me like that? I'm just watching you do your thing there, girl. (laughs) I've been watching you do your thing for over five years now, and I'm happy about it. Okay. Um, did you guys know that Walt Disney has won the most Academy Awards? Like the man himself or the production company? I don't know. It just says Walt Disney. Well, that's amazing that the guy can still win and not even be here anymore. I guess it's the Walt Disney company. Right. Yeah. It's the legacy. It's the company left behind. That's okay. Yeah. There you go. Well, they I mean, have won 26 Oscars and they've been nominated 59 times. Wow. Doing something right. I, I think that has a lot to do with longevity, though, right? Yeah, because, yeah. They've been around forever. Um, a blue whale's heartbeat can be detected from two miles away. It's probably because their hearts weigh 400 pounds. That's a hell of a stethoscope. Are you serious? Yep. They weigh 400 yep. pounds? Uh-huh. <laughs> Man. <laughs> with a my heavy cardiologist heart. told me that's how much my heart probably weighed. <laughs> So I just said, I'm um, say this with a heavy heart. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, heart. That was great. I love that. I say this with a heavy heart. There's a fruit that tastes like chocolate pudding. Oh, snap. It's native to Central and South America. The fruit is called black sapote, S-A-P-O-T-E. And it tastes like a combination of sweet custard and chocolate. I need I need to get that. Yep. Black sapote? 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 Sapote, Sapote. Yeah. Maybe. Black, then it would be sapote negro. Yeah. Right? So it's a, where is it, where is it located? In Central and South America. Well, then it's definitely sapote. Mm -hmm. For sure. If it's South and Central America. They say all the letters there. Yeah, I need to get that because it's healthy. Fruit, Fruit is healthy. Fruit is healthy. Chocolate pudding's good, though. Yes. But if this tastes like chocolate pudding, I need to get it. I don't prefer on. chocolate anything except for chocolate pudding. And that's that's one thing I do prefer, chocolate over, like, vanilla. Mm-hmm. That, um, Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. I could eat chocolate, like, all the time. Yep. Queen Elizabeth II was a trained mechanic. Get out of here. Was she really? Yep. As a teenager, Queen Elizabeth II joined the British Employment Agency at the Labor Exchange and learned learned about truck and engine and tire repair. 
Wow. And that's the one that just that just left us, right? Was that yep. that was Queen Elizabeth II? I think so. Who knows? The Queen of England could change a flat tire. That's yep. pretty awesome. That's um, handy. That's handy if, if if you're on a date and it's raining outside. You're trained for it. Get out there. <laughs> I bet she's never changed a tire though. <laughs> well, evidently she's been trained to change it. She's changed at least one because she was trained well, to do it. Yeah. Um so the Easter Island heads have bodies. Okay, like you can't see them? Or yeah, they're like, buried. Oh, they're buried, so yeah. they're attached to it. They have whole bodies. I was like, how can we continue to talk about this when bodies are missing? <laughs> um, so in the in two, the 2010s, archaeologists found out that the two Pacific Island figures actually have torsos. Wow. And that is all I have today. Well, now, that's now interesting. Know, and, go ahead. No, that's it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, now you know, and knowing is half the bullshit. Knowing's half the bullshit, and evidently some of the bullshit is knowing where the bodies are buried. And on Easter Island, we understand we that there are the some. Bodies are buried. The bodies are buried right there, ladies and gentlemen. We have an amazing show. We're going to be discussing all things pipe breaks because it is cold outside, and even though. Um, we are broadcasting from the great state of Texas. We know that it can get cold here from time to time. And in fact, um, it caused a lot of damage just uh, just three years ago. And we're going to be discussing kind of how you handle that and what that means. We're going to be discussing this in three separate rounds. When you hear this sound, you know that the round has begun. And when you hear this sound you know that the round is over. Now, once again, this is not a debate show. This is more commentary because we are just sitting ringside and it is you that is in the rumble doing what it takes to get the job done on a day-to-day -day basis. And we're providing some very insightful commentary. We always love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, whether positive or negative, please take some time and drop them in the chat. We are going to get into it right after this at the beginning of round one. Public adjusters, roofers, and restoration contractors, listen up. This is Jeremy Lavelle, host of The Rumble, and I am hosting a very unique training event called Control the Narrative. I will be unpacking all of my tips, tricks, and tools in a one-of-a-kind, one-day masterclass. If you want to learn practical claim strategy, how to gather the actual documentation that gets the claim approved, and how to manage and organize multiple claims, you are going to want to sign up for this event. Control the Narrative is being held on March the 5th at Alamo Draft House in Irving, Texas. You will receive a full day of training, access to all the tools and technology used in the process. You're going to get free swag, and most of all, you're going to get all of your questions answered. Lunch is going to be provided, and there's going to be a happy hour immediately following the training. So go to remedyclaims.com training to register. There's only 50 seats available, so don't wait. Register now, and I'll see you on the next one. Round one. <laughs> what is round one? Round one is round one <laughs> is categories and how they change. <laughs> Category round one categories <laughs> and how they change. I'm, le I'm leaving that in there. Of course you are. I mean, there's no reason to save face for me, right? <laughs> There's no reason to do that. So one of the things that I know, one of the very first things I learned about water and water losses is that when water sits for a while, it can change categories. So first of all, let's talk about let's talk about the categories and within categories there's also classes. And we happen to have a resident expert. I know that you heard me say it a thousand times, but I am so thankful and grateful that we have a water loss expert. In fact, um, Jess sits on the board of some sort that makes all of the decisions and determinations of how these protocols are um, determined and how they're really, really and truly, I think they're trying to communicate it better. Yes. I don't think their opinion about the losses have changed, but how they're communicated is probably what they're really working on. So Jess, I'm just going to kind of bounce past this to you and kind of tell us sort of what the CV of how you work with the IICRC, and then let's get into these categories and classes and move on to that. 
So I am on the board, as you said, for the rewrite of the S500 manual, the IICRC S500 manual. That is the manual that governs the water restoration technician, right? So that's what certifies after somebody's had the training and they have this manual together with the training in the manual and pass the exam, they get the certification to be a water restoration technician. I am on this board and, and when I say rewrite, it is not, these aren't overhauls. It is just a chance or an opportunity for the industry to come together, pull up the existing manual and go through it with a very fine tooth comb and see if there's anything that can be communicated better. I mean, you really hit the nail on the head when you worded it that way. <clears throat> it is not to talk about losses. It is not to talk about coverages. It's not to talk about what should or shouldn't, blah, 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 blah. It is to communicate more effectively, if there's, especially if there's a miscommunication in the industry, how can we communicate that better in the S500 manual? One of the things that has come up as a subcommittee which I jumped all over because as a public adjuster, we have to fight this fight like nobody's business. And that is the categories of water. We don't really have to fight class of water too much. Class of water talks about how much the water has been absorbed and is bound, right? So if, it's, if a lot of water has been absorbed or if the material just holds onto water for a significantly longer amount of time than other materials and that requires a lot more dry out time that that talks more to class of water but cat what would change water. i mean so it would be like whether it's carpet and what do you mean by bound that's the, okay. probably the word i don't really understand there and i've not yep. heard that word in in relation to a water loss what do you mean by bound? i got you brother Pla is class of water deals with intrusion and by bound, it means how how much of that water is sitting inside the material because it can't evaporate near as fast. It, you know, gotcha. If it's really gotcha, like a wall cavity would be. Yeah, gotcha. It's not gotcha. Okay, I understand. Yeah. So in classes, there's four classes. A class can be it represents maybe less than five percent of the combined surface area. You know, the water is still bound, or or if it's Five to forty percent is the water is bound. It might be class two. For more than forty percent, it's three. Class four is really where I mean, if the water just sat in wood, because wood wood materials, it's very hard to dry out very dense type of building materials. It just sits in there and requires a lot more air, a lot more movement, a lot more time, even some increased temperature to get it to evaporate. So. You know, what would be like a heavy nap carpet? What would what class would like a heavy nap carpet be? Well, again, so it also talks about class also takes into consideration the percentage of the surface area that was affected. So, okay, so it, it actually takes in two different variables to determine class, the size of the area exposed to the water, and then how much of it was basically sucked into and is bound in the material. So gotcha. whereas category okay. talks a little bit more about contamination. Sure. Okay. So so category category is what got wet. Class is how nasty it can get. So category talks more on the source of the water and the level of contamination that it may or may not have and then as it has traveled through the surface or you know whether it's gone through insulation now it has become more contaminated or it's sat for 72 hours and now there's microbial growth it takes into consideration the the contamination level and damage caused whereas class talks about more like volume of water and, and okay and how much it's it's bound into the this type of material. It has nothing to do with contamination levels. Okay. Okay. So so it's not like a so like a I'm just gonna say like a category three class four doesn't the class four part of it doesn't make the category three any better or worse. Right. right? So completely it, immaterial, separate. It, completely immaterial what? it doesn't it doesn't other than trying to remediate it i guess at a level in what you're trying to pull it or suck it out of necessarily could speak to the difficulty level or the time or the protocols that That's might have to do to with that it, so class deals a little bit more with 
if I analyze the class of the loss, you know, as a technician, you would then take into consideration how much air needs to move across it, how long it could take for this stuff to dry out. It actually, it does nothing to do with contaminants or contamination. It is more gotcha. with what, what is it going to take for me to stabilize this environment or this material and get it restored to so standard, dry standard. The category may really truly inform whether or not you're going to try to dry it or you're just going to yes. cut it out and get rid of it. Yes. That's really kind of what that's going to inform. Yep. So if I've got a class one category four water loss, that basically means, you know, back up the back up the dump trailer because we're just going to tear this stuff out because it's not really worth trying to dry out because it may be just more cost effective from a from a coverage standpoint and i'm talking we're talking about insurance claims here you know right. what i mean so that's what when i'm looking at the coverage is it cheaper to replace that room's worth of carpet and you know or is it worth trying to dry out you know 600 square feet or whatever the case may be um it may be less expensive to just replace that room's carpet than it is to try and dry it out so let's right. just cut it out and get rid of it right i mean that's kind of what we're looking at and i mean maybe that's a bad example but that's kind of what we're trying to get informed here yeah. that's what we're trying to understand what comes next basically so we would a technician would take into consideration both variables to really and truly assess the situation category and class they both have a lot to play in how a water mitigation company handles a water loss. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. Well, I mean, I honestly, folks, I just learned something there because I didn't really understand because I thought class spoke more to severity and it really doesn't. It really talks more about what got wet. So well, it, thank you for, so much well, for could, clearing that up. Well, but it could be severity in, in terms of how deeply held or bound the water is in a material. Right. How hard how it is to get rid of the water. Yeah. Yes. Right. Exactly. I, which I get. I understand that sort of that, that nuance there, and it is more conceptual in nature. But, I mean, so most of the time the materials that we're looking at are like, so let's take something like, studs right inside yeah. of uh and and in 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 a situation where i'm talking about i had <laughs> i had an adjuster honestly it was a fire and one of the things and it wasn't a bad fire it was just a fire and it wasn't like the whole house was in rubble or anything like that they got the fire put out the house was completely and totally restorable nothing nothing terrible but they sprayed a fair amount of water yep. on there. And I claimed that it was a category three water loss yep. because it was going on top. And I know I'm right. Like, look, I know I'm right. Yep. I have no doubt. He goes, but the water that they sprayed on it was clean. Yep. And I was like, you have no idea what's in that water. Like the, the most recent fire I worked, the fire suppression stuff that they used, there was still foam sitting in the yard. Yep. That's what you know what I'm say. saying? Like the fire... Yeah, there's I mean, residual. so there's a lot of chemical in that. Yeah, yep, there's so <laughs> regardless, though, that and that's why this that we, we have had a subcommittee on the categories, right? It's not that, you know, everybody's trying to change the categories. So please don't anybody. I'm not allowed to talk about what has transpired in that. But just know, right off, it, nobody's trying to change categories. What we're trying to do as a community, as, as a, you know, as, through the IRCRC is it remind people it is not just the source of water and even if even going back to the manual itself category one says that it originates from a sanitary water source and that's where everybody stops reading oh yeah, yeah, yeah sanitary water source came looked right out of the potable water truck okay but it also says and it does not pose risk to dermal ingestion or inhalation exposure and it does say categories of water could include right categories of water sources it does include broken water supply lines tubs sink overflows with no contaminants no contaminants meaning it's never it doesn't hasn't been cleaned with a bunch of you know simple green or kaboom purple stuff and foam you know the kids have never yeah. put their dog in it you know there's not any residual it just says no contaminants i'm not making it up nobody else is making it up the words are in the manual and that's that's all that's all we can really go off of 
It does say. So you can you can have a category one source. Right. But generally the water doesn't remain at the source. Correct. So when we're talking about a water loss, it hits something along the way in order for there to be a loss. So we were talking before the show um, went live. And it's like if it went from a clean water source into what did you say a a a sanitary container, right yeah, of some I mean, sort? Just what some was arbitrary? The, yeah, if it went from a potable water tank to a to a perfectly sanitized cup, yeah, it's still it's right. Okay, so one. yeah, so yeah, that's but that's not a loss, not a is loss. it? That is that is a determined deliberate act to transfer it. You know whether it's from the source so that it provides you know, hydration to an individual. So that's okay, right? I mean, that's that, that's not a loss. That's an on purpose. You know what I mean? And so, but once it passes through something, it literally stops being a category one. It's the way that I see it. And it's not, even if it wasn't the way any of us saw it, the manual itself states category water can deteriorate to a category two or three in that category one flows into an uncontaminated building does not contaminate an immediate change however and i'm reading this right out of the manual to all of our listeners out there i'm not making this up it's not like in the world of jess and all my classes and all my not your opinion yeah this isn't your opinion right manual it states category water that the the, i'm sorry once microorganisms become wet from water intrusion, depending on the length of time that they remain wet and the temperature of the environment, they can begin to grow in numbers and can change the category of water. Odors can also indicate category one water sources have deteriorated. It's not just the source, you guys. It is what all that happens to the water after it exits and, be- and interacts with the environment, which is the loss. Yep. Yeah, that's the loss. What is, yeah, what's the environment that it's interacting with, whether it's insulation? Well, and and one of the things that I know, like I worked a water loss, a very large water loss, and I'm going to tell you guys, hands down, my favorite thing to work, hands down, I... I am intrigued by it. It is it is so interesting what water will do when gone unchecked. Mm-hmm. The damage that it now <laughs> I'm not happy for the too. damage. I'm not, but I'm amazed at the damage at how how non-water resistant our living world is. You know what I'm saying? And for those of you who don't think water <laughs> water can do a lot of damage, I just want to remind you, water gave us the Grand Canyon. So um it can do it can do a ton of stuff and it can do and it can cause a lot of damage and i was working this one really big water loss and in fact um jess you and i have a good friend named chris corville and he was actually the one that moisture mapped this particular loss with us and if chris is listening he knows the one i'm talking about and basically it was a refrigerator leak so a category one water loss (laughs) or as one might say it's clean water and i fought this with the carrier i fought this with the carrier by the time that the loss was reported and mitigation began no lie it flowed so that he had porcelain tile on one floor and then you go down and so it flowed through the porcelain tile through the subfloor down to the lower what was more of a walk-in basement and he had this wood he had like this workshop that was all plywood walls floor ceiling was all just plywood in this workshop and mold had begun to grow we had microbial action and it was and it was i'm not kidding you probably a half to a one inch long bloom coming off of the ceiling it looked like stalactites (laughs) it looked like stalactites coming and it it looked like that it looked like little blooms that were all over and it was long and i'm telling you not just the not just the stuff that you kind of see on the surface i mean it had like bouquets coming off of the ceiling or whatever and it was and it was sort of a yellowish green color and i made a comment to him at that point in time I made a comment to him at that point in time that it's like, look, 
is that going to be black mold? And I learned at that point in time, and we'll talk more about this in protocols. He goes, no, the color of the mold has nothing to right. do with what kind of mold it is. Right. It, what it flows through determines the color of the bloom. It's it's so I want you guys to know that just because it doesn't look like black mold or if it does look like black mold doesn't necessarily mean that it is. And I don't even want to try to stay to say the word, the staphylococcus or whatever the, the stuff is either. called, the aspergillus <laughs> or whatever the different molds are. Um, that is not necessarily the color of it doesn't actually inform the strain of it. It's what it flows through that determines the bloom. So, well, I mean, any final thoughts on those class and categories? I mean, one, I, I, that is all, that was all really interesting. So Jess, what is your final thought on the class and categories? One and final thought to claims professionals is to not consider everything automatically cat three. I've seen a lot of that out there too. And if you don't know and you're not certified, that's okay to reach out to someone that is, get into the manual and look at the categories. It, it states plenty of losses can be considered a cat too. They can. Sure. Sure. So, so that's going to wrap up round one. I, I do want to, as we get into round two, because we're going to be talking about sort of the testing that you need to determine. So we're going to probably open it up on sort of like based on what we're looking at. So we'll figure out what can cause a cat two and a cat three and what we're going to do with that. Round two starts right after this. One of the most difficult claims you can work is a contents claim. It requires extreme detail and significant documentation. Ricky McGregor with Monarch Claim Services is the expert you need on your side. She will handle on-site evaluation, inventory, photo documentation, pricing, and overall contents claim organization. She will work with your team beginning to end so you can focus on the rest of the claim. Do your client a favor and call Ricky McGregor with Monarch Claim Services. You can reach her at 515-783-1434. That's 515-783-1434 or find her on the web at monarchclaimservices.com. Round two, the testing that may be necessary. Document, document, document. Well, I mean, because what we got, we at the end of the day, we've got to prove, I mean, if we're going to say it's a category one or a category two or a category three, the only way that we can really do, do that emphatically, not so that we can figure, it's not just to, to determine the protocols, it's also to determine the danger that we're in or the danger that that homeowner may be in, you know, whether or not they need to move to some other place or something like that. And And I'm going to tell you, I get that most of the time water losses, the, the worst thing about them is that they're inconvenient, right? But there are some situations like the one that I was talking about in round one where there was, I mean, you didn't have any business living in there. Yeah. And um, you've got a lot of people with different health concerns, things like that. All of those things have to be factored in on kind of what comes next. But kind of, can you just real quick kind of tell us the difference? What is the separator? What makes it, what is the difference between like a cat one? We talked about cat one. It's from a clean water source, cat two, and then cat three, because cat two and cat three both have some kind of contaminant in it. What is the delineating or the line of demarcation between two and three? So two says that it does contain some significant contamination and has the potential to cause some discomfort. So that's, that's when it comes to the microorganisms part of things, if, if somebody were, and not that anybody would ever do this, but if somebody were to accidentally ingest the water that has you know been on the floor and they have some discomfort, maybe a, a little bit of illness, it's a category two. So some examples would include yeah, like dishwasher, like discharge from dishwashers, right? Some washing machines, mm -hmm. um, obviously toilet bowls, but it's a toilet bowl where there's no urine or feces in it. So even if it's just, you know, there was nothing in it at the time your child flushed it and it went onto the floor, um, according to the IRCRC's manual, it can automatically be a category two water loss with the caveat that it can deteriorate to a three. So if it sits and it starts developing micro, you know, microorganisms worse, then it's, it can degrade to a three. Um, 
where it gets into category three, they, they say the word grossly contaminated and contains pathogenic, toxinogenic, and harm, other harmful agents that cause adverse reaction to humans if in come into contact or consumed. So sewage, waistline backflows, you know, just stuff like that. Seawater, water coming from, you know, hurricanes or, or major storms. It, and it does actually say in here, wind-driven rain from hurricanes, tropical Ooh. storms, or other related events. So yes, for as a public adjuster, as a claims representative or whatnot, you could still categorize that a lot of things that come after hailstorms, where it comes through the roof, you know, it, it comes, it was a water-related event. You could argue that. But in my in my last sentence, in the in the last round, I did want to preface with, do, do the analysis first. Think through it. Is it a category two or is it a three? Because time and time again, everybody just wants to put every single loss as a category three. Every single one of them. A large majority very likely could be, but you have to be able to defend that. Why? Why is it a category three? So level of contamination and the effect it has on human life is that delineator. So, okay. I, I, and I love that. I love that. It's the borderline losses. It's the borderline yeah. losses where it's difficult to make a call. And if I'm going to err on a side, I'm going to err on the side of human safety. Right. Right. And, um, but when it comes to what a carrier owes for, there's probably, there's, there's a burden of proof there. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. And when you err on the side of human safety, it's like, okay, let's get you guys into a hotel for a night until we can get some testing done and figure out what we're up against. And I think that that's reasonable, yep. right? But what are some of the testing and what would you do? Like, we know that we've got a water loss, you know, whatever the category is or isn't, what are some of the things and what are some of the tests that's out there? And I know we all know the mold test and we all know these kinds of things and whether or not it flowed across asbestos or rat poop or whatever it was that it flowed across. What are some of these tests and visual inspections that are conducted by an ICRC professional that helps inform, you know, so solidly with documented, with documented, documented proof as to what this category really and truly is? Because this is information that matters. Yep. So one start interview. When did the loss occur and how long has that water been sitting there? To substantiate how much water, you know, sat there, if if it's not known right away, another uh, one method or means of determining the volume of water is to contact the water company. If you're on well, well water, okay, well, without a meter, you're definitely not going to be able to tell. But if you're on any kind of city water, right there, you could call them up and say, hey, between yesterday and today, you know, at the discovery of the loss or or before I left on vacation, what was that measurement? And then what was my average usage? And then boom, you'll see a you'll see a spike. You'll know this was far above normal, and you'll have an idea of the volume. So that might help out with the class, right? The class of water, but it uh -huh. also would help show you know just how much water entered the environment because that also affects the the relative humidity of that environment. Um, right, it does a lot. And and then, oh, my God. And I want to come back to relative humidity of that environment here briefly kind of as a coverage issue. But I don't want to stop you, even though I just stopped you anyway. But keep going with this because I don't want to rabbit trail off no, of this. Cool. So, I'll, I'll just finish with those are those are the first two. I mean, doing the interview and getting the facts straight is definitely sure. what a lot of people miss. Then going in with the tools, right? Use your infrared. That'll help, you know, document. That'll at least help identify where the temperature anomalies are occurring. Again, I'm going to say uh -huh. infrared does not detect moisture, but it is helpful. <laughs> <laughs> it's helpful. It detects temperature. <laughs> it just detects temperature. That's it, not moisture. But it is helpful in kind of locating or narrowing it down where there might be a water leak. Then you have to, have to, have to moisture map with your moisture readers. There's pinless. There's a pinless method that is non-invasive. That's what I, I typically recommend if you're just a PA that's doing this. Um, but the technicians will will use the probes, the pins, and will actually take measurements of you know the wet baseboards, the wet drywall, etc. Um, 
And if you're going to operate a moisture reader, please read your moisture meter manual. I'll say that all day long, too. We kind of talked about this in previous episodes. Not every moisture meter is set to the same settings and defaults. Know the capabilities of it. Um, yeah, and then and then if, to take it the next step, if you're if you're needing to identify what microbes might be in the area, us as public adjusters or or even you know your your standard water race, water restoration technician, in most states they can't test for mold. You have to hire a bring in a certified uh, mold assessor to assess the environment and conduct the tests. And typically it's done through tape. You do a tape test and some other methods. Okay. Well, I think that that's, I mean, I want to go back to the interview because that really informs a lot of things. One of the things that I teach in Control the Narrative is that that initial interview with the insured or the firsthand account of what happened or the firsthand account of the discovery of what happened is crucial to informing kind of what comes next as far as the extent of the loss goes. And I think it's really interesting that that interview is definitely part of the protocol. I do have a quick question for you, though, Jess. You talked about what a PA should do versus what a, what a, uh, what a, uh, you know, maybe a, 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 you know, a technician might do. I want to tell you guys, I use a, I use a tool called, the FLIR MR277. Now, FLIR doesn't pay me to talk about this, so don't think that they do, but this MR277 that is made by FLIR is kind of a three-in-one kind of a tool that I like a lot. Um, it's got an it's got an infrared camera on it. It's got um, just a regular camera on it. It has you can do it also has a moisture meter and it also has a hydrometer or it, it'll tell you what the relative humidity is. And so it's kind of this all in one tool that I like quite a bit. It's not the cheapest tool. You're not going to go pick it up, you know, on the checkout line of Home Depot or anything like that. But check it out. I don't remember how much it costs. I think it was somewhere right around $1,300. But if you're a PA professional working water losses, $1,300 is not that much to have this three-in-one tool that covers a lot of a lot of ground. But I want to ask you this. When it comes to a moisture map, even if you are not the guy that's going to have the initial moisture map done, it is good for you to take these assessments and at least relate your findings to the expert. Yes. This is what I found. What does a moisture map look like? I mean, what is yeah. like a crude, quick way to kind of do it? Give us an example of what that looks like. So there's there's two methods. One is through, you know, through the photography itself, right? So you take your overview of the room. Okay, let me back that up a little bit more. One method is take the little blue painter's tape. And wherever you take your measurements, you start, you know, down at the base, especially if the water loss occurred from, you know, down on the floor. You would start at the bottom and you would do, you, you run your moisture meter and test multiple spots along the wall going up the wall. Because what you're looking for is how much has that water wicked or soaked into the drywall and is being pulled Or up. bound to the bound. material. <laughs> so, and so wherever it's the, the measurements or the meter starts reaching dry standard, put you a piece of blue painter's tape and then pick another spot on the wall. And then start at the bottom and go all the way up until you start reaching that dry standard. Stick another piece of blue tape, uh, painter's tape. You know, you don't have to paint, you do the whole wall. Just many points along that wall. And then stand back and photograph the room. That's one way. Another way okay. um, to kind of more simplify it, especially for estimators, is to do uh, kind of like take a floor plan. Like whether it's through Xactimate sketch or, or Matterports or whatever, who, get your sketch of the floor plan and map out what, which walls need a two foot flood cut, which walls need a four, um, which ones the flooring is damaged and which, you know, what, where the damage in the ceilings are and, and choose different colors and, and make it like a map and, and, and then back it up with the photos. I mean, so really, I wouldn't even say sure. that the two are exclusive, put them together. You kind of just kind of run them together. So when you, you talked about a dry standard, so, and I, and I actually know the answer to this, but I just want to make sure that everybody understands where you get the dry standard. So you go to a place that's not wet, yes. that shares a similar environment, and then you take what's called a control reading, or at least that's what I call it. So, 
um, you know, you can pull that control reading from a room that doesn't have any kind of any kind of moisture loss in it whatsoever, like inside of a pantry or inside of a laundry room, something that's it's an unaffected room. You go in there, you take um, to figure out what your moisture level is. And I'm going to tell you, typically, at least in Texas, drier climates may be a little bit different. You're going to see anywhere between seven to I've seen as high as 20 percent. Um, dry you know yes. moisture readings on a wall that's been unaffected yep. so you can see anywhere between seven and 20. once you get above 20 your 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 antennas need to go up once it gets higher than that now if you're taking a control reading in an unaffected room upstairs and you're getting 24 well that's your control reading always take a picture of that take a picture of what your control reading is and note where that picture was taken because it's because it should be clear that this is an unaffected area completely and totally unaffected by the loss and take a picture of it. And that is going to be very, very helpful, you know, when you're trying to create this moisture map, okay? Because the moisture map is really one of the things that we're going to talk about. It's going to inform what comes next. It's the protocols that need to be carried out. That's going to be super important. What are some other tests kind of in our last minute and a half here that are more high-level tests other than the tape test? Obviously, there's a mold test. And you got to have like a, there's a difference between the guy that tests the mold is not necessarily the water technician and all that okay. kind of stuff. So kind of break that down for us. Yep. So uh, typically you'll run into a certified mold assessor or a certified mold remediator. Um, and then your regular water restoration technician. Not all three are created equal, but they can all play a part in a water loss. So the water restoration technician is, is you can kind of consider that like your first line of defense. They're the first responders. You know, your certified mold assessor would be, you know, maybe that second responder, right? The, the one that says, ah, okay, I see what's going on in the environment. I'm taking my tests. Uh, and now the tests have come back and this is what I recommend we do. And then your CMR is your certified mold remediator is the one that comes in on the back end and says, okay, I'm going to follow what the CMA put in their protocol and actually remove it because I'm, I'm licensed in the proper removal and disposal of these terrible contamination, you know, contaminants. And not all mold is, is deathly or whatever, but the ones that are, the ones that require CMR, you know, which is certified mold remediators, that they're licensed to dispose of that properly so that it doesn't cross contaminate the other parts of the structure. So I've got a, a very important question and I think, and I, and I want to wrap up what you said, not all microbial or fungi growth is dangerous. Lots of us take off all of our clothes and get in and take a shower with it every morning. Some of us just good old fashioned North American mildew. Okay. And it is not necessarily what would be dangerous, but I do have this very important question. Can you have microbial growth that is a direct result from the, from the given water loss, the origin of loss, the pipe break, dishwasher leak, whatever the case may be, and it still remain a category two, or does that new, so I'm not talking about pre-existing mildew. Do you understand what I'm saying here? The delineation of what I'm talking about. We have brand new microbial growth that has never existed before until this water loss occurred. Can that remain a category two, or does that automatically catapult it into the category three category? I will give you the IICRC's answer. Yay, we have answers. Not, not the in the world, not my personal opinion, because in my personal opinion, I'm sorry, I, that liability, I'm not willing to take on that that liability. Sure. But well, yeah, that I wanted. To, yeah. What's the standard here? The what's the standard, standard? says that potential water category two water can contain potentially unsafe levels of microorganisms or nutrients for microorganisms, as well as other organic or inorganic matter, whether it's chemical or biological. As long as the, the the buck stops with, does it just cause some discomfort and maybe gives you some diarrhea for a day or two? That's category two. If it's putting the you, great equalizer. Yeah, I mean if it's if it's got pathogenic, if it's toxic to human you know health, any anything that causes a adverse reaction to humans, catapults it to a category three. 
but yeah. Is there is there an acceptable amount of toxic material? And I know I'm getting very granular here. Is there is an is there an acceptable amount of toxic material? Okay, so there's a difference between non-toxic microorganisms that just cause some discomfort because we're just having a, a discomfort reaction, and then there's toxic. So that and, and pathogenic. So that that's where that that threshold stops. Not in other words, what you said earlier, not all microorganisms or, or whatever that we're exposed to are toxic to us, but we might have a slight reaction to some. Right. Okay. So that pretty too. much again, and I'm gonna tell you if you have to make a call in the moment err on the side of human safety right right? and i mean i think and and the other thing that i want to point out as she's reading these standards these are minimum standards okay so it does that standard does not mean check your brain at the door we're going to get into um we're going to get into some of the uh the protocols that are called for um some of the protocols that are called for once some of these test results or the interview has been completed. We're going to get into that in round three. Round three starts right after this. When choosing someone to help with your online marketing, make sure you go with someone that has years of experience. Our good friend Sally at Thrive has over 20 years of digital marketing experience. She can build you a beautiful 15-page sleek, interactive website, post on your social media platforms multiple times a week. She can do a video, an amazing CRM to manage and uh, maintain and nurture your clients, text, email marketing, review generation, a business listing on 60 plus search engines, including free voice networks, appointment scheduling, estimates, invoices, payment processing, and more. She will also create for you on uh, on Google, a Facebook page, and Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you need these for your businesses, she'll, cr- she'll help you create those pages on all of those sites. If you already have these pages, she'll optimize them for you as well. Well, call or message Sally today. If you want to get started, you can reach her at 214-789-1651. Again, her name is Sally Brigance. Her number is 214-789-1651. And uh, you'll also get a landing page the day you sign up. When you send her a referral that signs up with her, she'll credit your billing account. Logos are also available. Um, and she also offers a lead generation service to SEO, search engine optimization, where she can uh, guarantee you to appear on the first page of Google or your money back. It is spelled T-H-R-Y-B. And you can find my good friend Sally Brigance, and that's spelled S-A-L-L-I-E, Brigance, B-R-I-G-A-N-C-E. And she can be reached once again at 214-789-1651. Round three, let's talk protocols. So you had your CMA come in and he goes, yeah, there's mold in this area. There's not mold in this area. Let's, what are some of the different protocols that we're looking at that we know that we're dealing with a category three? What are the protocol, what are the telltale signs of category three water losses and the protocols that follow? Okay. So first I'll define the different roles. There's a CMA, which is a certified mold assessor, and there's a CMR, certified mold remediator. Um, Depending on who certifies them, they may be called something slightly different, but uh, I'll just go ahead and preface with, I'm using the normie uh, terminology, and normie is one of those, um, it's the National Organization of Remediators and Microbial Inspectors. That's, That's who certified me to be a mold assessor and a mold remediator. Now, I'm again, I am not I I've not physically gone out and done these activities. I am only certified, meaning I took the course, I passed an exam and and stopped there. I'm not licensed. There's no practice behind what you're saying. Exactly. So where okay, I'm gotcha. coming from in this conversation is very it's edu- for educational purposes only. So, I'm just going to preface that but i do know the differences and so certified mold assessors 
are licensed, or well, if they're licensed, then they're licensed professionals that come out and physically inspect and test the environment based on the using the investigative techniques whatever results come back from those investigative techniques they write a protocol whether it's to sanitize or remediate based on and there's a couple different guidelines and it is it is based on the iicrc s500 the s520 and epa standards as well so they there are some governing manuals and bodies that a cma has to write their protocols on the CMR, on the other hand, they are those certified professionals to come out and physically remove and properly dispose. So they're usually, they know what PPE they need. They know how they need to set up the, you know, containment barriers. And that's where all of those things come into play. They are strictly out to avoid cross-contamination during the removal process and, and basically neutralize you know, mold from the environment. And it's specific to mold. This has nothing to do with asbestos or anything like that. But sure. That's that's the differences in the two professionals. And is it possible for you to serve as both the assessor and the remediator on the same loss? No, sir. Of course it's not. It no, not. they're you're gonna Just have that. to be different. So let me ask you, so the, so the assessor has come out and let's just for argument's sake came out and he, and he finds, you know, he comes back with a positive test or a positive results. It's like, yeah, this has got some bad shit in it and we're going to have to do something about this. Right. And so he's got the different, the different protocols and I don't want to get into the protocols of his testing and how he goes about that, but isn't there generally a visit where he comes back out and essentially clears the structure from the mold after the, the certified, yeah. the CMR has, has gone through and done and, you know, supposedly followed the protocol and then he's got to come out and do that. And he right. certifies it clear. Is that a, that's a, that's part of the process, right? Yes. In most and cases, I uh, know I'm not saying 100% because again, I've, I've not actually physically executed these things myself, but that's that's what the training indicates is yes, there is a test done in the beginning, the, the remediator comes out and removes or, or neutralizes whatever the case may be. And then the tester comes back to make sure that it, it doesn't pop hot anymore. So Jessica, one of the things that we're going to do a show on is because we don't have time to get into all of it because I want I want to continue down this road. I think one of the things that we're going to do is is water coverage and and the different caps and all of the different things and so instead of me trying to get into all of the coverages in this kind of thing, which is typically what I would, you know, where I'm an expert you know, is, is the coverages that are available on that kind of thing. Um, we'll do another show on that. But is there, what if the, the guy comes out and, and he is attempting, well, let me ask this question first. If it is discovered, does that CMA have to report it to anybody? Like any sort of government or, you know, regulating body that says this structure mold was discovered in it. Does he have to tell anybody? No, I don't believe, I, I think it, I can't remember. For some reason, as you're asking that question, I was thinking there was a certain chemical or a certain microbe. There's certain, like, alert us if you find this out in the wild kind of thing. But other than that, no, I don't believe, I don't remember. So it's not reported to, like, the real estate so that when they, you know, like, when, when you're trying to sell your house and you have to disclose things or anything like that, that's, there's nothing that's that's nope. listed in it. I will tell you in a clue report, it's possible that if they paid a mold loss, there is a chance that it will show up in there. So it's really important right. that you you make sure that you get these clearances done. You have that certified mold assessor come back out and clear the house. What happens if he comes back and goes, nope, you didn't get it all. Does that change? Does the protocol say the same or does it change after that? Or what if he comes out and discovers it in another place that maybe he didn't see it before? That kind of thing. What happens there? Do we just start all over again? That kind of thing. You would prepare a new or, well, I guess another technique would be revise, but other other than that, you prepare a new protocol. Here's what's remaining. We got that this was what it was, and we have a stopping point. This is this is the protocol that needs to be initiated now to finish this out. 
some of the things, you know, like drywall, that's pretty easy to cut out and replace. But there's some things that aren't so easy, such as like framing members. And framing members are incredible because they're organic. Generally, they're made out of wood. And so they're susceptible to microbial action or microbial growth. There are certain protocols that you'll see that um, the that the assessor, <clears throat> for lack of a better term, will recommend he will you know often i've seen them you know have the protocol of sanding down the framing members or whatever to make sure that they get all the way down in there um there's there's all of these different things that i've seen it's not just antimicrobial that you spray on it but i've seen them i've seen them i've seen protocols sanding the framing members is that something that is normal is that in the icrc I or i have not seen where they talk about sanding framing members it's a line out of it doesn't happen. Me too. Yeah, I was What's gonna say that? it doesn't happen. It just means I have not seen it. You know, well, most, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, most hurricane, and again, I'm going back mostly to hurricanes. It's it's typically, I mean, hurricane losses are kind of their own beast. So it's not really pipe burst, but in a hurricane loss, when your whole house gets just pouring rain dumped into it, yeah, pretty much any affected room, the drywall just all comes out, and it's immediately. You know, fans are on it. They're trying to dry it out. They're applying the the antimicrobial afterwards. In other cases with pipe bursts, I've seen where you know they might set up, um, you know, containment barriers so that doesn't cross contaminate other rooms. You know, mm -hmm. some holes down in the baseboards, or, or I'm sorry, the uh the, the bottom edge of the drywall, and they'll encapsulate and just kind of dry out from within. But there's there's even there's a lot of talk about does that even still <laughs> meet you know the the pre-loss condition you know sure let me ask you this like let's say we do and i know i mean i think we discussed in round one it's very difficult to have a category one water loss right um it's just because of the contamination as it flows across something that that could cause some discomfort whatever the case it could be splinters i don't know whatever whatever it may be you know is there some sort of so would you say that anytime you have a water loss it would be a proper protocol or is there anything written within the standard that would state that you need to treat any sort of water loss no matter the category with an antimicrobial is that sort of best practices or is that standard what I mean, is there something you could say on that, or is that just you don't know? I I can't speak on it because when it, when it comes, I don't remember uh, when did I I took this course and got certified almost. Well, no, it wasn't a year ago. It feels no, actually, yeah, it was about a year ago. Um, so I I can't speak to it as an expert certified mold gotcha. or an expert certified mold remediator. I can only speak it as someone that's educated and certified. There is a big difference. But when I took the class, I was wearing my PA hat just mm -hmm. to, just to understand what does this professional do in a claim? What sure. language do I need to speak with sure. these people? And, and now when do I, it, Along the claim process, when should I call in or recommend the insured call in one of these types of professionals? That's That was the main reason for taking the course. It was definitely not, and I do want to let the uh, audience know, it was never to be able to test my, our own claims. Never. Sure. Right. It was, it was really more to how to, how to, how to approach a loss. And it wasn't even about, you know, writing a protocol or anything like that. And that's really sort of, I just want to be able to inform and figure out we've crossed what I believe to be some sort of threshold where I need to bring in some kind of expert. Yes. I will tell you when I'm writing an estimate, I said this earlier in the show, I err on the side of human safety. If it's a mistake, I don't have any problem with standing up in front of a judge or in right. a deposition and saying, yeah, I treated it with antimicrobial because it got wet. And because you're talking about something that they, that is hard to dry out, especially when it comes to a framing member or a flooring member or something along those lines, I am at a bare minimum, you know, like in an attic loss, like if you've got a um, an AC drip pan leak or you've got or you've got a, you know, an attic situated um, water heater and it's gotten across, I am going to coat that as much as I can in antimicrobial because some of those environments, especially when you're talking about an attic, it's an uncomfortable 
controlled environment anyway. You know what I'm saying? And you're not going to go in and dehumidify an attic. You're often not going to dehumidify a garage. Places like that where there is no climate control, you know, you're just not the, 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 the climate the climate control is not something that is a concern under normal circumstances, but mold has a funny way of migrating and it works like a cancer throughout a house if you're not careful. And it often goes unseen and unmanifested on places because it, it's going to grow where it's easiest to grow. It's going to have the most available food source is where it's going to go first, right? And so as long as it's got an available food source, the likelihood of it spreading. I remember um, um, Donna went and did a Matterport for a fellow PA and um, she came back. I was not at this loss personally, but I remember I I looked at the Matterport after she was done with it. And I'm telling you, it grossed me out. It was one of those, it was one of those things that I, I hate seeing really, really moldy rooms. It's kind of a, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me almost. And I looked at this thing and I mean, it was so bad and it was black and dark green kind of looking and it had just invaded and grown everywhere. It was so evident that it had gone unchecked, but it, you know, and it didn't even have that area where mold used to be and it kind of died off and then the growing, you know, it dried out for a little while and then it came back. It wasn't one of those. It was one of the most active mold growths that I have ever seen in my life. And it was disgusting. And as an estimator, and I say that as an estimator, I am probably going to go overboard from a place so that I can err on the side of human safety. I want to kill all of that stuff because nobody wants to live with it, right? And so those are things that I am just going to err on the side of. And that's what I would tell you as a PA and an estimator. I don't have any problem with standing up in front of a judge or telling somebody in a deposition, yes, I erred on their safety. I erred on the side of their safety. So was it overkill? Maybe, maybe, but I know that it wasn't wrong to protect them. And, and as you're estimating and you're looking at these things and you're evaluating these losses, I go all the way back to round one or round two, where we talked about the interview. The interview is one of the most crucial processes that you go through that informs not only your strategy, but lets you know exactly what happened and how bad is it because you can't just always use your eyes. Your eyes are not always going to tell the entire story of what you're up against. So you got to sit there and think about water follows the path of least resistance. And if you know that the water got in on the roof and now it's showing up in the living room, it hit everything between the entry point and the manifestation point. And so we've got to go address all of those points along the way. So water loss isn't just where it's manifested. You've got to consider every possible place that that water has touched. And I am, I am so thankful that I have a resource like Jessica that I can call and ask these questions to. I know that there are a ton of resources out there for you. Um, My good friend, Chris Corvell, has never not answered the phone when I called him. It is important to him. It matters to him. I would get with your local mitigation company. PAs, if you're not partnered in some kind of way with a mitigation company, go out and make those relationships. I, I cannot tell you how pivotal and important those relationships are so that you know exactly what your role is and how you can approach it and help your policyholders and these people that have filed claims because they certainly don't know. They certainly don't know. And you cannot just depend on them to do that. Jess, you got any final thoughts for what it's like to handle these water losses and pipe breaks and all of these see my air quotes category one. (laughs) Yeah. The, the one thing I would really like to end with is that there's nothing wrong with anybody in the claims industry going and getting some of these courses and reading these manuals but you can't call yourself the expert on in those lanes take the courses understand the verbiage the language that these professionals speak you that also allows you to network with those other professionals those other students in your class you know learn these things but really just keep in mind we're not as public adjusters we are not supposed to be these experts we, we and can't don't try opine. to be yeah yeah 
don't but, try to be and you want you want to fall back on the experts that are actually out there that are doing it in right. practice yeah yep. i mean even if you know the answer i mean it's always better coming from an expert that is actually putting it into practice so any public yes. adjuster out there knows that anybody can pass this test, right? But it's a big difference between being able to pass the test and actually work a claim. So you understand the difference here. So don't tell me because most of what you, any question that they ask you on the test is never anything that you've ever actually used in the field. So just because you can pass a test doesn't mean you know anything. And, right. it, and just because you sat in the class doesn't mean you know anything, but it will help inform you on what comes next. Guys, um, if you found this episode valuable, please click like and subscribe. And if you know somebody that needs to hear this, I am begging you, please share this with them. This is how we spread the information. This is how right. we come together. This is, this how, we is how we unite. This is how we make a stronger in industry. Um, we're going to be covering some of the coverages in water loss. Are you good with that, Jess? I think that'd make a great show is kind of covering some of these different water coverages. We'll pull yeah, some policies. changing. There's, yeah, they're changing all the time. If you've got some stuff, I want to dig into that whole mitigation cap thing that we talked about in a previous episode. That's going to be really good. But guys, we'll be back next week. And in the meantime, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And we will see you on the next one. That was fun.